This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me, your need-to-know financial podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, if you're new to our show, welcome. At Talk Money to Me, we explore what's happening in the markets, take a deep dive into interesting listed businesses, as well as private businesses. And we sit down with really interesting guests in the finance industry. Now, today we're very fortunate to be joined by an individual well-known in the funds management space, Tim Samway. Now, Tim is the Chairman of Hyperion Asset Management, an Australian and global equities fund manager with over 13 billion in funds under management. Tim and his team actually built Hyperion over 24 years ago into one of the best performing managers in Australia. He actually started his career as a chartered accountant with Deloitte, followed by nine years as a director with the private client broker Burroughs Limited. Tim's career has been one of building successful businesses. Now he's also the chairman of Packhorse, and we're going to learn a little bit more about Packhorse a little bit later. Um, but he actually oversees the processes that will ensure the interests of investors and stakeholders remains paramount. Before we get into our conversation with Tim, we're just going to give you some more background on Hyperium's investment mantra, which is really similar to our own fact. So they stand for protecting their clients' wealth and growing their capital over the long term, which we're going to hear a lot about Tim talking about the long-term perspective. They have an amount of a massive amount of research that back behinds their high conviction ideas ideas. And that mindset that Tim walks us through is really about being long-term business owners and investors, not short-term traders, you know, with their long-term sustainability of those investments within the fund that they've held for decades is what we're going to hear all about. They also have a really impressive track record. Hyperium has been awarded various financial awards over the years. More recently, it was awarded the top fund manager of the year in 2021 by Morningstar and The Money Magazine. Yeah, and look, their funds typically are concentrated high conviction ideas with about 15 to 30 names. Now, their flagship fund, the Global Growth Companies Fund, has actually had a really impressive returns, beating benchmarks over three, four, five-year time horizons, boasting over 19.30% returns since inception and a running total return of 294% versus the benchmark of 166%. They've also got other funds, the Australian Growth and Small Companies Fund, which has also got a great track record, as well as the Australian Growth Fund. What we're saying, guys, when it comes to the world of markets and investing, Tim is one of our go-to guys. And if he wasn't busy enough, his other day job is running Pacos, which is a business that acquires agricultural properties and manages the land through regenerative farming 
well-being practices. So ESG play there. So in today's episode, you're going to hear about the renewable energy market and opportunities Tim's seeing there. You're also going to learn about carbon sequestration. We're going to hear um, Tim's thoughts on the current state of play in the markets and the success story behind Hyperium as one of Australia's top fund managers. Now, you guys know the drill, but before we get into our interesting chat with Tim, please note our conversation today is not considered as personal advice, even though we are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners. So please note, guys, that the podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Welcome, Tim, to Talk Money to Me. Thank you. Can you please tell us about Pacos? Why and when did you start this business? It's been 20 years in the making. I've had a colleague that I've been uh, talking to for 20 years about taking agricultural land that's been degraded and regenerating it. And uh, he uh, he went and bought a, a quite a large cattle station about five hours by car west uh, of Brisbane and started the process. And he said, look, I just need to do this on millions of hectares. And I said, well, you need a funds management model. And so uh, we got together in 2019 and started the funds management model that's that's now Pacor's pastoral company, Australia. I, I, at the time, I was the managing director of Hyperion, and I sort of looked into the future and realised that Mark Arnold, who is the current CEO and CIO, was the logical person to take over as the CEO of Hyperion. He's the right age, I'm a bit older, um, and he'd been a driving force. He was one of the original partners that had founded the business, and uh, he was the logical choice to be the next uh, managing director. Everybody shouldn't be managing director for too long is my, <laughs> is my view of things. So. That's a good tip. Um, now, so you started a funds management business, Pacos, but what do you actually do? Yeah, so so it's 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 uh, it's a cattle business, um, but uh, it starts with addressing succession challenges that occur all in the farming community. A lot of older Australians who run cattle properties whose children have moved away and they don't have anybody to leave the properties to. Uh, They're below scale and they've been underinvested over many years because they've been very focused on putting their kids through private school, buying a new um, four-wheel drive every uh, every three years and perhaps having a holiday at Mooloola Bar. But it hasn't been about, you know, putting the money back in. Now, it's not all. I mean, I, I don't want to generalise here, but there are a yeah. lot of a, a lot of farmers like that. And we buy those properties and uh, what we do is we spend the capital on them, mostly in the water, improving mm. the water points, uh, the fences, so they call them the wires, the water, the wires, and we plant legumes to supplement the, the grasses that are there and in the areas we are, that's normally buffalo grass. And by doing so, we actually improve the soils, improve the grass cover, and over time, we lift the carrying capacity of the properties up to a higher level, which actually makes them worth more. So we get a higher yield. It's a property play. It's a property play with regenerative aspects to it. So we're improving degraded land. We've treated land in Australia uh, for generations now on the same basis as we did in the UK, where we all came from originally. Well, not all of us, but a lot of the farmers did. And the challenge was that the, the climate's different and we needed to have different practices. And um, the, the nice corollary to all of this is that if you actually fix up the soils and improve the biodiversity, improve the grass, get better photosynthesis happening with more grass cover and, and less dirt, you change the way that the water cycle is managed. So uh, when 
when it pours, which it does every now and then in Australia, you don't lose all your topsoil. And when it's dry, which is is most of the time here, uh, you retain water in the soil, and that enables you to sequester carbon. And that's that's the big end play for all of this. That's what we're aiming for is that we can own a couple of million hectares of, um, of pastoral land, and we can sequester. Uh, a very serious amount of carbon dioxide as soil organic carbon and put it back where it came out. You know, that's, that was the whole process of creating fossil fuels years, you know, over the millions of years. Yeah. And over the last hundred years, we've, we've, we've dug all of it out, extracted it and burnt it and put it back into the atmosphere. And what did we expect? There'd be no consequences. Well, we're finding that out now. And uh, we need to undo that. Not only do we need to reduce emissions, which is really important, mm-hmm. but we also need to put all that carbon dioxide back into the ground. And carbon sequestration through soil organic carbon is just natural. That's, you don't have to do anything mechanical. You just have to grow lots of grass. Right. I mean, that kind of leads into our next question. Um, can we delve a little bit deeper into what carbon sequestration actually is yes. and you know why it's important uh, for us and our audience? Yeah. So as I was saying, the, the reality is we've got to get this carbon dioxide back into the ground. It's a key greenhouse gas. It's having a long-term effect on, on our climate. Uh, what's happening is that um, average uh, temperatures are increasing. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't think this through all the time and they think about it in terms of, well, today it's 25 degrees in Sydney and where I am today. And uh, if the temperature goes up two degrees, that means it'll be 27. Uh, that's not so bad. Let's turn the aircon on. Um, what, the, what they fail to consider is that average temperatures have uh, averages and they have very substantial effects. So, um, you know, in the last ice age, uh, where the temp- average temperatures were four degrees lower than they are now, um, Manhattan was under two kilometres of ice. And so what we're actually facing is an existential uh, challenge here. That is, we don't fix it, we're not going to be alive. Um, yeah. Our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren's children um, are facing a very more difficult future. So um, fixing fixing the soil by allowing it to sequester carbon, which is a natural process. So it's carbon dioxide. That's what plants um, uh, respire. They take in carbon dioxide. They use the carbon to build their root system and, and, and it exudes into the soil and becomes part of that rich soil that when you know when something's carbon full in the garden, you lift it up and it's full of earthworms and all that that root material, well, that's what carbon is in the soil. And you can measure it. You put, um, you take a core, uh, you go down a metre and so, and you can take that to the lab and measure the carbon. And the beautiful thing about this is that the government has accepted that um, this is an important part of solving for getting to, to neutral by 2050. And as a result, they'll pay you for doing it. So if you're a farmer, and you can do this at scale, uh, they'll actually pay you in a thing called Australian Carbon Credit Units, um, ACUs. And uh, a year ago, they were trading at you know, $15, $14 uh, a unit. That's equivalent to a tonne of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, uh, they're at uh, $40 or so, having hit $60. Um, but around the world, lots of companies are projecting a carbon price north of $100 a tonne. And uh, that's going to be a whole different market. So in the future, there definitely will be carbon taxes. There definitely will be border adjustment mechanisms that are imposed on companies. Uh, You've just 
I mean, we've got to we've got to do this work. It's just politically unsavoury, and so they've put it off as long as they possibly can. But there will be a time where the temperature range gets too high, and there'll be no choice. They'll actually have to in, 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 in put these carbon taxes in. And companies that have not prepared for it um, by reducing their carbon footprint will probably go broke. Yeah, so there's a point of no return is what you're really saying. That's right. And and so the carbon sequestration is just one piece of this. The other part is all about understanding which companies are exposed to potential carbon um, efficiency risks in the future. Mm. That is, as carbon taxes come in, how will they, will they be able to pass it on? And if not, have they got are their balance sheets strong enough to, to uh, survive. survive that? And it's not a short-term thing. So it's, it's not something you can trade next quarter. You're obviously in the... Um, regenerative grazing space here in Australia. Do you know, I guess, the percentage of the market uptake in that space so far? It's ve- yeah, it's very low. So, um, so we have a long way ca- to go, really. To oh, educate a long way to go. So the, so the government in its uh, uh, booklet, pamphlet, whatever it is, it took to COP26, uh, put a circle around 28 million hectares of pastoral land that could be turned over to carbon sequestration. A lot of that is in small hands. You know, when I say farmers with 500 hectare properties where it won't be, well, it's not at the moment uh, feasible to do that. The costs are too high. So they'll need scale operation to do it because it gets cheaper with scale. Um, on our properties, we've only registered 13,000 hectares so far in soil organic carbon projects, and that's the largest in Australia so far, that gives you an idea of how far we've got to go. This is a nascent uh, opportunity. Um, and we're not selling at Packhorse Pastoral, as I said right, right up the front, this is a property play where we basically, we're like a Westfield, we move in, we yeah. buy a degraded shopping centre, we build a car park next door, we upgrade the lifts and the lights and, and the music and the Wi-Fi and, and then charge higher rents. That's what we're doing with this land. But the icing on the cake will be the carbon sequestration in the future. It's just very hard to put a number on it at the moment. It might be marginal, it might be, it might be very large, depending on what the price of carbon goes to. To help incentivise the farmers, are there any other opportunities in the renewable economy to really kind of get the conversation going? Uh, there's a lot of farmers thinking about this and, uh, and, and there's also a lot of service industries starting to come around and knock on their doors and say, we can help you with this. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the average farmer uses an awful lot of diesel and while um, a D9 Caterpillar, you know, they don't make an electric version, uh, mm. not, not, not yet, uh, certainly there's a lot of properties being converted to solar and with batteries um, and they're reduced their uh, dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, the opportunity is you have a dam and you can float um, uh, panels, you know, solar panels on it. Um, helps reduce the evaporation and uh, it also uh, it also is a very efficient place to put it. So. And in our previous episodes of one of our um, Autopad, we talked about the, the rise and importance of potash. What are your thoughts on potash? Here's the thing. The idea with regeneration is to actually use the cattle to do a lot of the work. So the beauty thing about a cow is on the plus side, it's a walking uh, lawnmower and fertilising machine. Yeah. And it also is very good at digging up the soil with its hooves. And and on the downside, it emits methane as it eats grass uh, in its rumen and... 
there's a challenge on that side with methane and there's an opportunity on the other side with the work they do. Um, We're choosing to use the cattle to actually make the difference and the way they do that is we put more cattle in a smaller uh, uh, a smaller paddock and move them more often. So they fertilise the, the, the grass and then we move it off and let the grass naturally grow. The methane we address by planting uh, a legume called Progardes desmanthus. Uh, when the cattle eat that, um, it's a perennial, little perennial bush basically, it's a legume, yeah. uh, they emit less methane. And uh, certainly the whole industry is working on the opportunities to reduce that further with vaccines, which is another exciting opportunity. That is, you can vaccinate a cow so it doesn't, um, it's not there yet, but that's what they're working on. And they feed them a a red algae called asparagopsis, which reduces the methane emissions by about 90%. So wherever possible, what we're trying to do is implement things that don't require a fertilizer input because at the end of the day you start I mean that that's that's just adding to the problem. Okay, so we heard um, a term recently that I was like I've got to ask Tim what this means. Are you referring to a burping cow in that sense? Yes. <laughs> It's so funny because everybody says, oh, the f- they all talk about the farting cows, but it's yeah. not. It's, it's the work that the, f- the, the, the rumen does in breaking down the cellulose in, in the grass. and The methane, it's right? It's methane. Yeah. They burp methane, uh, CH4. And look, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because methane doesn't last very long in the atmosphere. It's about a 10-year recycle gas and there are uh, bugs in the soil that actually absorb the methane as the cattle breathe it out while they're eating and and ruminating. Really? Uh, But the the red meat industry lost the argument years ago. They should have got onto that quicker. Now they've just got to reduce the methane because it might be a short-acting gas, but it's a very powerful greenhouse gas, whereas carbon dioxide is not quite as powerful, but it sits around in the atmosphere for a 1,000 years doing a 1,000 years' worth of damage, and that's what we really need to stop, and that's where all the real big fossil fuel challenges are is carbon dioxide. So if you're not into cows but you're an ethical investor, let's say, where else can you invest, do you think, in the renewable energy economy? You know, we talk a lot about water, you touched on solar. Where else are you finding of interest? So it's going to be a massive tailwind uh, for the next decades to come. There is so much money being spent in development on batteries, um, solar, wind, all of the alternative, basically, if you can think of an alternative to fossil fuel, there'll be money being thrown at it. And the challenge for investors is actually the same challenge you find investing in companies that aren't in this area that still have tailwinds. And when we get to Hyperion, I'll talk about um, how we invest there. But the reality is it's still investing in companies that can, that can do really well or fail. I've seen many businesses in a tailwind still go broke because they won't run well. And that, I think that's the biggest challenge. So I often get asked, is, where's the lay-down Mazaire uh, investment in renewables? There is none. It's all about finding uh, well-run businesses that have competitive advantages. And so, for example, in Hyperion, our biggest bet on the future of the renewable economy is Tesla because they have solved so many parts of that supply chain from the motors to the batteries to the artificial intelligence that runs the car to the you know to the, all the bits and pieces including the whole supply chain and getting access to it and and that looks like yep. a much more 
accessible opportunity to us than getting into a commodity play, whether it be lithium or some other input to the process. Mm. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a pivot. So you're also the non-executive director of EMI. Now, EMI is the first technology platform that puts the power back into investors, giving them data-driven intelligence, carbon-adjusted financial metrics, objective insights and complete integration to actually allow investors to make informed decisions on investments around carbon. So why are professional investors so interested in understanding this? And can you tell us a little bit more about EMI? Uh, where do I start? Well, I start with the risk. I mean, yeah. Everything is a risk or an opportunity, okay? So let's start with the risk. We think at EMI that there's probably up to $30, million, $30 trillion worth of unpriced carbon risk sitting on balance sheets around the world. I'll just let that sink in for a second, $30 yeah. trillion. Dollars. Wow. Yeah. 30 trillion. And it won't hit overnight. It's actually quite challenging to get to the point where you understand which company can survive in a carbon-constrained world and which can't. And that's what EMI uh, attempts to do for institutional investors and fund managers and, and asset consultants, uh, both at a stock level, at an individual company level and at a portfolio level. It's designed to say to that, uh, to that investor, I'm looking at your portfolio and here are the areas where in the longer term your investments may struggle or or really you know, succeed very well in a carbon constrained world it allows an investor to 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 do the scenario analysis and say so what happens if carbon gets to $200 a ton what happens if we hit one and a half degrees early and governments around the world take much stricter action where where or if consumers stop buying my product because it's carbon unfriendly and what effect does that have how is that uh, related to my ability to handle my debt, my value at risk, my you know my profitability, my dividend, all of those sort of things, and um, so the, the 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 challenge is to stop thinking about carbon as car- you know low carbon uh, good, high carbon bad, because. Um, there are plenty of fossil fuel companies that are going to really make out like bandits in the next 20 years. They'll be the really efficient ones that, uh, that aren't at risk from higher carbon taxes. Um, and there's not many of them, but there are some of them. And we're not, we're not going to stop producing fossil fuels tomorrow morning. I, I know there's plenty of greenies who would, lo- who would love to think that we could just shut it all off tomorrow. But the reality is you can't. I mean, if, we, if, if you're seeing what's happening with Russia and U- Ukraine at the moment and its effect on Europe, a reduction of 20 or 30 percent in, in the supply of fossil fuels to the northern hemisphere will leave people dying of cold. And so, you know, like I could say, it's easy to say, let's, let's kill it all tomorrow, but, you know, are you going to be responsible for 100 million people dying of cold? No, I'm clearly not. We've got to come up with ways of treating it and addressing that, and this is where EMI is. It's saying, look, only the fittest should survive. The, the most efficient producers of fossil fuel should survive. Everybody else should basically give up now. And we think long-term about it. So it's, it's trying to take the, um, the, the, the view which a lot of the market holds, which is it's about next quarter's earnings or is it a rotation from, is it a growth to value yeah, rotation for this term. month or what's the effect on, you know, on the oil price in the next month? I mean, we're thinking long-term, this is in decades now, um, which, is, uh, which is, you know, I think there's some real money to be made. And I was going to say there's the risk side, but there's the money to be made side and they're, 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 I think there's lots of alpha to be produced 
over the next 20 years in understanding um, which businesses will handle carbon efficiently. Have there been any other companies that have been flagged on this platform, your Emmy platform, that would kind of be surprised to hear? that they're, you know, not heading the right direction? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And <laughs> I was sitting down with the uh, executive team the other day. We were looking at some of the results because I'm fascinated. I, it's a platform. It's, it's, uh, it's on, you can pull it up on your browser. And we were looking at some of the Australian um, uh, oil, oil and gas businesses, which are looking, they have quite low scores. And I mean, that doesn't mean they're not going to fix it over the next 10 years. It just says right at the moment, if you take a snapshot of that business, given their current uh, balance sheet profitability, how exposed are they to a carbon transition, uh, transitioning carbon uh, world? Mm -hmm. And they're at great risk. Mm -hmm. It shows you a um, continuum of companies from lowest to highest. And I said, well, hang on, there's all these oil and gas companies that actually they get quite high scores. So what's this one? Saudi Aramco? Seriously, it's got a score of 65, where a lot of these oil companies we're looking at have scores of five, and it's a score out of 100. So 65 is a pretty good score. I mean, put it into context, there's plenty of tech companies that score 80, you know, so it's... And, and we went through the numbers, and it's just... It's seriously strong. It's got no debt. Uh, it's ruthlessly efficient, and uh, and it's well-placed to handle a carbon-constrained world. And that's the shock I get, so that's a good question. I mean, that one jumped out at me. I, I, I wasn't expecting that. I expected no fossil fuel companies to come up well, but actually a lot of them do. And that's really interesting insight because we can't just blanket no to all commodities and energy companies right there. We need to reward commodity companies that are doing well in that space to help reduce the... Absolutely. And do remember a lot of these uh, big emitters now are running around trying to green themselves. We've just got to be careful what's greenwashing and actual green. So we don't want them buying cheap offsets to pay uh, forestry companies not to log um, stands that they were never going to log anyway. I mean, that's just that's that's the most pointless thing I've ever heard. But actually, that's exactly what happens: is that they have forestry on the sides of hills that the forestry company looks at and says, "We'll never log that. It's just un- it's un- uncommercial." And then they get paid not to log it. That's 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 greenwashing. Yeah, yeah. So let's leave our conversation for now about Packhorse and Emmy, um, and let's move over to your other role at Hyperium. So let's dive deeper into the investment climate and talk about the opportunities you're seeing there in the market. But before we do all that, we're just going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And we're back. 
Before the break, we were talking about Pack Horse and learning about Emmy, but now it's time to turn our focus to Hyperion. And as we said at the beginning of the podcast... Tim is the chairman of Hyperion Asset Management, which is one of the leading Australian and global equities fund manager. Now, Tim and his team actually built Hyperion over 24 years into one of the best performing managers in Australia. So you are obviously, Tim, one of the founding partners. I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to kind of hear the story of why you sat down back in 1996 to set up the fund. It was pretty muddy, I have to say. Uh, a group of us were working at a stockbroker, Wilson HTM, and Stephen Wilson, who was the managing director of Wilson HTM, which was based in Brisbane, had this view that uh, stockbroking would be challenging in the future and that uh, one way to uh, diversify the income streams of a stockbroker and actually provide better service to clients was actually to think about a funds management approach. And so I was his first hire um, in a division that was the funds management division to make that happen. And then we built a team around us. So it was a group group of people that did it. But we've, we built this business from scratch. We started with zero dollars under management and, and went a dollar at a time, basically. And for a number of years... Um, uh, you know, it's just, it just dragged along and you just had to keep turning up every day. And then all of a sudden, uh, 2009, so the GFC was the defining point. And, and really the defining point was when we started, we said, look, one of the challenges of working in broking is that in the research department, you end up covering a whole lot of companies that you wouldn't probably buy yourself because your clients have, have invested in them and they want to hear about them. I, I know that's a, a painful truth mm. that clients probably don't want to hear about, but often you know, they say, oh, we, we followed this company. And we'd say, okay, rather than put a hold on it or, a, you know, or even a sell from time to time, why don't we just only have the companies that we want to hold for the rest of our lives, you know, the, the decade-long, um, long-duration businesses? And so that's what we bought initially, and that was actually very unpopular in the, the late 90s and the early 2000s because if you think there was the dot-com boom and then there was the momentum boom up, right up until the GFC and good quality long-term businesses weren't in favour, but then all of a sudden in mid-2009, the market was down 22% and we were still in positive territory. And a lot of people said to us, wow, okay, quality investing. <laughs> You've been doing it for, for 10 years now and it's worked, hasn't it? And we said yes. And that's where it really it took off from 2009 and particularly from 2012, obviously. From 2012 virtually to the middle of last year has been a growth market and long duration growth stories have been very amply rewarded by price increases. It's interesting you you said that your moment really in this, you know, kicked off in the GFC because that's what we always say when as advisors we look at potential funds uh, to go into for our clients' wealth. How do they perform in the downturn, right? It's, it's everyone, yeah. I know it's, it's what everyone tr- achieves to do is to make that alpha in the up markets, but are you also mm-hmm. making upside and beating the benchmark, even if it's ever so slightly in a downturn market? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, everybody can do well, uh, you know, when the tide's rising, it's when it goes out that you find out who's been swimming naked uh, to, 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a great well, term. I think it's Warren Buffett said that, so that's not my <laughs> phrase. But but that's the reality, isn't it? Is that the rising tide lifts all boats? Yep. Um, yeah. Um, but the reality is, in the last ten years, with lowering GDP growth, mm. um, it's becoming more challenging in old world businesses to make money. Now they're having a, a lovely resurgence at the moment in the last five months, as we've had a surfeit of short term growth uh, following the sort of the recovery out of the pandemic. Uh, everybody's sitting at home buying stuff. Um, you know, how many boxes can arrive at our house? I just I, I lose count. Um, and there's been a lot of stimulus that's from governments that's been turned into buying atoms that have moved around the world and created um, supply chain shortages. Uh, and so there's a lot of older world businesses that have actually done really well in this period, and that's why you've seen a, a rotation from those growth stocks to the value stocks. But you know, in, in a way, that's that's still that's a trade. Um, you know, you you can't sell the future to buy the past. That's a good quote. That's I really ch- like that's your that challenge. Yeah, well, that's that's a quote from um, our CIO Mark Arnold, and I the minute he said it, I said yes, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly the point that um, these businesses that are the, you know, the long-term duration growth businesses are actually the future of our economy. They're growing their market shares. Uh, their products are superior. They're doing it more efficiently. They're using data more effectively. Their competitive advantages are widening um, and their value proposition to their customers is getting better. And so their margins expand. And while some of them aren't making dollops of, you know, large dollops of cash, they're profitable and they'll just be more profitable in the future because their competitors are being smashed. It's called a power law relationship. It's the it's basically the winner takes most mm. in some of these, not all markets, but in some of these markets. Yeah. And look, that's how we like to invest for our clients, you know, investing in companies that are really changing the way we do things. And we think yes. it's important when you do look at a fund manager that you don't just look at the one year returns. You do want to look if they've consistently outperformed for a longer period of time, because as we know, we only really should invest in equities with a five to seven plus year time horizon. Correct. There is a lot of focus on your global growth companies fund. But you also have two other funds, so the Australian Growth as well as the Small Growth Fund. So we'd actually be really interested to hear more about these funds and where you see opportunity in the Australian market at the moment. You know, we never think short term, so no. I'm never thinking. I know, I know, it'd be great if you said, "Oh, I'll buy this." And it'll be up this much in a year. We don't think about that. We think in 10-year terms in terms of, uh, of our investment. We want to buy businesses with competitive advantage, advantages that we think can uh, can last at least 10 years because that's how you make your money, your compound earnings growth. Um, and some of the companies that we've owned, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just limit it to small caps today because, you, as, as you say, it's, it's easy to talk global because there's plenty of those businesses. They are... They are the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Teslas, the the Alphabets, the you know all of those businesses. They're 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 not new anymore. Some of them have been around twenty years, and they're still growing at ridiculous rates. And we think that you know that will last for years. So you know, our, our global companies fund probably is our flagship. But I have a very um, a, 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 a very soft spot for our small growth companies fund because. We started that back in 2002 and it's performed its socks off because you actually find the it's the nursery of businesses that have gone on to grow and, and do wonderful things. I'm reminded of my early career as a, a very young chartered accountant working in Newcastle, New South Wales. 
uh, and get, been giving a, given a job to go and install a brand new computer system in the offices of the local dermatologist who was a client and meeting the managing director of a company called Primedicus. Now, that was 1982, um, oh three. Yeah, and now Primedicus, it's in our portfolio. It's a cracking success. It's picking up accounts in the US. It's changed dramatically from those early days of rolling out effectively sort of accounting and patient booking and note systems uh, to patients. But, I mean, what an amazing story and, and not an overnight success, uh, literally 30 years of hard work to get to where it is now. So that's a, that's a, a very interesting story. Um, some others in our portfolio um, are also quite long-term stories and they're often built by um, a founder with a real passion for what they're doing. So uh, I'd include WiseTech in that in that uh, in that list. I mean, it's, some of these companies are no longer small, small. You know, they're not microcaps, um, and and many of them are creeping. Like we own uh, REA and, and Domino's in this fund because we, we don't want to sell businesses merely because they pass through an arbitrary limit that S and P um, regulates with an you know with an ASX one hundred. Um, and so we still own Domino's and REA and a number of companies, car sales. We've owned them since virtually since, well, yeah, since listing. And, and they've been 100 baggers for our clients, so they've been fantastic. But, you know, more recent ones, when I say more recent, in the last 10 years, WiseTech and... Um, yeah, we can see that you've actually got Whisper in that portfolio as well, which is one that Shore and Partners cover. So when did you add Whisper to the portfolio? Uh, that would have been about a year and a half ago, I think. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it's not a big holding in our portfolio. It's kind of... So the way that things get weighted in the portfolio is on their prospects but also adjusted by their market cap mm-hmm. and their liquidity. And, and so some very great, you know, some terrific ideas sometimes end up at 1% and 2% weightings simply because they're not um, super liquid or, or they're not very large or um, it's just too early. We build our, um, we're prepared to take years to build our conviction in a stock. We want to go through multiple earning seasons and see how they've uh, how they've delivered on their uh, on their promises, and uh, really assess management and understand their forward looking statements and see whether they can be relied upon. I mean, obviously we do our own work, and we'll, we'll never be guilty of blaming management for telling us a fib because clearly we should be doing our own work and independently assessing that. But um, yeah, so that's an interest. That's an interesting one. Is there any other kind of things that you do outside the box compared to your peers uh, in the fund management world when you do select an equity to go into the portfolio? Uh, yeah, well, I, I think this is an interesting view. I mean, uh, <laughs> We're I'm ready prepared for it. to be criticised on this, but so I'll give you an example is that we've been through a period with uh, Domino's, DMP, Domino's, uh, and there was a period there where Domino's had no friends and uh, the Sydney Morning Herald ran endless stories about wage fraud and, and all these other, I mean, I'm not going to go through all of that, but, mm-hmm. you know, we'd done our work. We'd gone and talked to literally hundreds of franchisees. We'd talked to their employees. We'd, we'd followed on Glassdoor what they were saying about their experiences. We'd gone and talked to their unions We'd even travelled to Europe and, as you'd expect us to do, and visited uh, a lot of the stores overseas. We talked to 
the guy that was suing them in France. Um, that was more one of the one of the more interesting meetings, uh, <laughs> you know, because they because Domino's forced you know basically ruined his business because they were so good. I mean, clearly we've done the work and. We had clients saying to us, you're idiots, why are you holding your stock? You know, like at $45, you should have just sold out. Um, and a lot of those clients went a bit quiet as it climbed towards $160 yeah. a share. And, Did you take profits I, at that I, point recently? It, we always, like, yeah, that's that's our whole process yeah. is that, I mean, we have long-term views on companies, but we're sensitive to short-term movements. And so as the valuation shrinks, because you know a relative valuation shrinks as the price rises, our weighting will drop, and it's it's reasonably automated, so that we're a bit contrarian in that respect. So a company that's running hard in price, while the rest of the while um, our valuation stays stable, all the other things being equal, the, the the weight will drop, and vice versa. So you know, so clearly now as the as the price is falling again, um, are you a buyer on, at these levels? Would you say we, we've we've lifted our holding again? Yeah. So you know, over the years, I, I remember periods where we had eight percent in Macquarie Bank and then as it hit its first time and hit ninety five dollars we had one percent and then when it backed down to twenty percent it was an eight percent holding. I mean short term market volatility is just the gift that keeps on giving for a fund manager that is 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 um, is dedicated to being disciplined. And that's happening again right now. That is, the market is handing us opportunities in companies that we think have fantastic long term prospects. Um, and all the signposts are still good. The earnings season, I mean, Domino's was probably our only disappointment with their Japan stores. Um, most of the others came through with, uh, with better earnings than we expected, and here's the market marking them down. So uh, that's just, in our terminology, that's an opportunity. Mm. And I guess like in the small, mid and large cap, like what we're seeing is you, the mentality of just buying and holding it can actually do some damage to how volatile yeah. it is at the moment. So it's good to hear your insight there that it, it, you need to be active in this current market. I oh, know, we take opportunities. Yeah. So I'll give, you, I'll give you the extreme. So we bought Tesla right before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. They, just, uh, they just passed um, that point where profitability was in sight, but certainly cash flow positivity was there. So, you know, we took that view we don't want to be expose our clients to a permanent step down in capital. So we don't want a company that has to come back and do life-saving fundraising and, and if it fails, they go broke. So we wait to that point, uh, even though the whole team owns Teslas. Like I got one, Mark's got two or three, Jason Orthman owns one. We love the product, but we need to love the company too and we'll wait mm-hmm. until all the, the stars aligned. We bought it. We bought more in March. The company's price just kept on going up and up and up, and we were we were basically a seller for a year because as the company rose, we just took a reasonable view on what weighting we should have in the portfolio. So every day we were a seller, trimming, 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 um, yeah. trimming, trimming, so trimming, trimming, trimming all the time. And we sold off the shares we bought at the beginning of the year. We sold forty percent of those shares by the end of the year, but then they didn't get immediately into the S and P and. Um, they dropped 20% in a night, and I remember one of the dealers telling me, yeah, we, we've basically gone from um, seller to buyer overnight, and we bought for three or four days, and then they were back up, and we were back to selling again. So, so long-term view, but prepared to trade the, tra- trade the sentiment in the short term, yeah. That 
kind of brings it down to sticking to your guns as well. Like you don't get carried away and fall in love with the company. Um, you know, you do decide to take profits down the track um, mm. when you believe it's rallied really hard. And I yeah. think in this market, because it is so volatile, you know, you guys would be loving this market realistically because of the opportunity, right? This is probably the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> for it happens every, no, it does. I mean, it happened in 2009. It happened yeah. again in 2012, happened again, um, you know, March, March, um, March of 220 was a ridiculous opportunity. We, we uh, initiated exposure to a number of stocks in the middle of that period. Afterpay, I'm just going to forget now, Spotify, Airbnb, uh, a couple of Aussie stocks, I think Temple and Webster. I mean, there were a bunch of them that we that we basically initiated um, our exposure right in the middle of that period when the whole market had gone into sell mode. Um, we took the opportunity to rotate out of some of the businesses that were um, very stable but unlikely to really benefit from a global pandemic. So you've been, I've been writing these companies down, you, you're mentioning a lot of, you know, they've weathered lots of storms, they've had a lot of pricing yeah. power, they're kind of monopolies in their own right and they can eat up their competitors. That's obviously a theme that you guys stick your, your hat up, you know, um, in your investment yeah. philosophy. But yeah. does that change in your opinion with the current inflationary environment that we're in? You know, high inflation, low unemployment, the Ukraine war, um, COVID war still kind of going on. Is any of that changing your perspective of the markets? Not much. Um, so firstly, yes, we are in a high, high inflationary period, um, you know, massive supply chain uh, challenges. Um, and that's and that's carrying over into wage. You know, there's no immigration, so you know, lots of jobs you got to pay up to get to get the right employment. Um, and you see the numbers going up above seven percent and higher in the US. So clearly, we're in that short-term period. We still take a ten to twenty-year view. Um, GDP growth, economic growth, is still going to be low in the long term. There's lots of things that will, drop, that will be anti-inflationary. Um, innovation and renewable energy will bring prices down. Uh, we will get back to travelling, so um, immigration, emigration will change those wage flows. Um, we think that uh, in the long term, it, we're still in a, a low-growth world with relatively low inflation and, as a result, normalized but still low interest rates so you know we expect interest rates to normalize we put that in all of our um, valuations that's the first thing and the second thing is we buy businesses just as you've just defined them there they're businesses with massive pricing power so businesses that can steal market share because they've got a superior product usually have superior pricing power and that's what you need in an inflationary period so uh, and and they have huge amounts of their, their capital light and have very little debt. So they're not exposed to high interest rates and they have pricing power to increase prices in, in an inflationary period. That's the sort of company you want to own. The only challenge, of course, is that as interest rates rise a little bit, um, those long duration um, cash flows that we're, that we're valuing uh, are a little less valuable. But um, you know, the sort of increases that we see in interest rates uh, wouldn't offset the 20% plus earnings per share growth that we expect out of them over the next uh, 10 years. We've got some clients. We also have listeners that are worried about high growth names that aren't making any money at the moment. There's no net profit. Are you worried about some of these names as interest rates look to rise? I know you said they were normalised. If not, why? 
Why not? Yeah, you should be worried about them. We don't own them. Um, yeah. they, they are, it's like that's where you, uh, to, to go back to a point I made earlier, that's how you risk clients' capital in businesses with a permanent step down. That is, if it goes wrong and they can't raise money or they can't raise debt, they go broke. And you're right, there's huge numbers of platform businesses that are, uh, that are years away from profitability and cash flow positivity. Uh, that are relying on raising capital and when things get difficult capital dries up very quickly and uh, you know so it's all very well looking at a debt to equity ratio but you know when things go bad the debt stays fixed and the equity uh, halves so you know that's challenging. Are you hinting at the buy now pay later space if I can ask that question? Uh, no, we're actually a, a very strong su- a supporter of Block through Square. Yeah, block, we think yeah. Afterpay, I mean, we think it's a winner takes most uh, um, scenario uh, sector, sector. Yeah, so you, you, there will be a bunch that just won't make it. Yeah. Um, and Afterpay played at the game very cleverly. They're now inside a bigger business um, that's got, um, you know, literally tens of millions of customers. That's a whole app to, to, to sell their product to um, and global distribution. Uh, I think if you're a small buy now, pay later in Australia, struggling to get into that area, um, the, the future is looking very clouded. And, and we've certainly seen that in the adjustment to their share prices. I'd have to say is, um, um, companies like Block and, um, and PayPal are in a different class. And their prices have come back very substantially. So, so buy, buy, know, buy, so buy, buy. An opportunity. So we <laughs> yeah. see an opportunity there. That's right. So, so um, Square is Block Square is a big holding in both of our Australian. Sorry, in our Australian portfolios. Yeah. yeah. At this time, we have a lot of clients and investors, listeners wanting to actually get out of tech. But you're basically saying that you should stay in solid tech names and it's nothing to worry about realistically in an inflationary and interest rate increase environment. It's being careful with those tech names. Some of them are dominant and will remain dominant. So, for example, we've downweighted our holding in Alphabet, uh, not because we hate the company. We just think it's got some challenges in the year ahead, with, um, especially with iOS uh, changing the privacy rules and, and having people required to opt into a whole range of things. That that reduces their 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 their, their data trove, and that's what they're all about. But in terms of, like, we're not selling it. We're just no. holding it at a slightly lower weight. We actually think the, the future is looking very sound for those businesses. It's the same with Meta, with, with its PayPal business. I mean, you know, they're getting challenges from the TikToks of this world and they're spending an awful lot of money transferring people to reality labs and producing, um, um, you know, the, the metaverse. And, you know, like, that's yet to be proved I know yeah. Mark Zuckerberg talks about a world where we ditch Zoom and we start participating in meetings with our with our virtual reality headsets and actually looking into people's eyes and, and seeing, you know, the, the whites of their eyes. It'd be quite cool. <laughs> It'd be very cool, but I don't want yeah. to spend all day doing no, it. No, no. <laughs> but I'm I'd too still... old. Maybe you would. I, no, I, I have no intention I of doing that. I even so. rather in person. I even struggle yeah. putting the Zoom background as it is. I can't even manage that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, think, I think in person is still, you know, the best way to have meetings. Absolutely, um, but that's what they're trying to. That's what they're trying to deliver there. And look, that may work. It may, maybe the tr- 
truly groundbreaking opportunity so that you get a feel of space and 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 presence in, in that situation but yeah. uh, you know you don't want to spend all your money on the future and not actually have, continue a great product and, and their advertising product is so superior uh, they need to make sure that it's 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 looked after and, and you, all the problems with that are, are, uh, are documented so I won't go into them again that's but, you know, that's, that's the challenge so in terms of tech names you know, it's just not tech is not tech. There's yeah. there are businesses with very uh, very strong competitive advantages, network effects, uh, who will likely be the winner takes most. But there's a hell of a lot of platform businesses with network effects that don't have a competitive advantage that will just go broke or get taken over. Yeah, I actually um, heard something very funny the other day about the metaverse that people were not wanting to buy houses in real life, but that's okay because they've got a house in the metaverse. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I still don't really understand how that's going to help you. Um, yeah. but like, oh, but we have a view in the metaverse Each to their like, own. Yeah, but- <laughs> fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Try sleeping in it. Yeah, yeah right. Or eating that food that's on the table there. Yeah. Um, now we've got a couple more questions for you. Um, we've had some really great insights to. Today. So what thematics do you really see playing out over the next 10 years? So there are some fantastic thematics that, that we're invested in. I think one of, I mean, to, to, I mean, we're doing a podcast today. I think that is a very substantial thematic, the move from linear entertainment to on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen it. I'm a bit of a late comer to Spotify, um, but now I use it almost exclusively. I can listen to the radio in the car for a long time. I listen to the podcasts. I've got I've got a, a list of them, and Equity Mates is one of them. And, but now you have to and, add talk uh, money to me. Uh, of course I will. Of course <laughs> I will. I'll add that too. And I've got a, you know a bunch of others um, on there as well on long drives. I listen to. Um, it does help that Spotify is a native app on Tesla, which makes it very easily easy. But but having said all that, uh, that is a very substantial change to the way that um, people will consume their media. Um, you've seen the rise of all of the, the various um, uh, streaming services. Uh, we aren't invested in them, so we, we, we took Roku in the, in the US because it's sort of the I, I think I think of it as sort of the one ring that binds them all to to borrow the, that, that analogy. And that's been hit massively lately as well. Yeah, it has. Yeah, but still, like, the advertising superiority it has where it can actually um, it can actually define a watcher based on age, sex, um, geographic location, what they're watching, that's very... It's, it's, uh, it's very advantageous to advertising. It's the same way as Meta does it with their, with their knowledge base and, and same with Google, with Alphabet. Um, you know, I think that's a very substantial... Um, opportunity that can be actually played well. So, for example, there are some, some some very big opportunities in genomics, for example, over the next twenty years. But that's um, that's risky stuff. That's like investing in pharmaceuticals, and you know the the cost of producing some of these things is just getting astronomically large. And although the win rate. Uh, is low. When they win, it's huge, but when they lose, they just write it all off. And, and sometimes the patent, you know, at the end of the patent, a genetic, come, a generic, I should say, comes in and takes all the profit um, or takes all the market anyway and, and reduces the profitability. So, like, that's an example of there's some great opportunities, but playing them will be harder, I think, and require much more work yeah. in discerning the in discerning that online. I mean, e-commerce is just taking over our lives. 
I mean, that's just you just keep playing that. You, that that's that's, a, that's that's the gift that keeps giving. You know, E-commerce. like it's still a very small part of our overall retail sales. So there's much more, you know, much more opportunity from the Temple and Webster's here to to croak what's in our small caps. I think Kogan as well in the longer term, and certainly Amazon in the very long term globally. I've had to turn my notepad over five times. So many investment thematics, I think, that are really interesting there. This is a really good, um, I guess, way to finish off. We're going to do a quick speed round here with you, Tim. So what are your top three positions in the portfolio that you hold personally and why, if you can talk, if you can talk about it? <laughs> Just in your personal uh, portfolio, it might not be okay, in the opinion. Right. So, I mean, uh, okay, and we all know this is that. not personal wow. advice. Yeah. No, it's not personal advice, but I mean, uh, I'm I'm a person who eats our own cooking. So love that. Uh, That's great. Yeah, so my largest personal position would be uh, the Hyperion Global Growth Fund. Yep. I've just invested in the fund. I mean, we we have a rule at Hyperion. If you work at Hyperion, you in equities, you only invest in our fund. Fabulous. That's so that's that's easy. So, so that's your top. So for the analysts and the portfolio managers, if you want to buy something, you've got to convince everybody else that it's a great idea and get it into the fund to be able to buy it. So that's And that's you're invested along your um, shareholders, right? And your investors skin in the game. Yeah. Well, that's a big thing yeah, for us. Investment. Uh, my second biggest investment is actually in the Packhorse Pastoral Fund. Yep. Um, I, once again, I believe actually in the thematic I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of money made in, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a sophisticated investors only offer. So, you know, sorry, retail investors, it's not it's not out there yet. It will be one yet. day, but, but for the moment, it's sophisticated investors, yeah. And uh, my third actually um, is a stable mate of Hyperion's at Pinnacle, uh, Metrics Credit. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm, I'm in oh, my we 60s. We love Metrics. No, yeah, we love I'm Metrics. I'm in my 60s. And, you need and, a bit of defensive. Uh, I need a bit of defensive income, and I think their, their Opportunities Fund is an out, outrageously good investment, and I've... Very much That's enjoyed these days. Eight percent yield, right, or around that? I know, isn't it amazing? amazing? And yeah. and in the middle of the pandemic, the the unit price went from two oh eight down to a dollar. Uh, where did it get to? I think a dollar forty five. Wow. <laughs> For a fixed interest product that lends money to highly rated Australian companies, I mean, that price suggested that there were a whole raft of top 200 companies that were going to go broke. Yeah. Like, no, it was never they never missed happen. a dividend, right? They never missed a dividend for no, their, They never no. missed a payment. They, they all paid. So that was an opportunity. But um, Andrew and his team at Metrics, I'm very impressed with them. So I have to give them a plug because I'm a, I'm a yeah, there's my three, you know, yeah. biggest We do love the Metrics funds. There's a lot of other things, though, and I won't go into those. <laughs> They're your top that three. Are a bit more risky and a bit. Well, yeah, I, I, I like being an angel investor. So I've invested in a bunch of things, including Emmy, for example, which I think will be uh, will be a hot future Definitely. Um, as, it, as it builds more clients around the world. But, you know, that's not publicly well, this might lead into maybe Emmy, but I'm going to put a caveat on it. So I'm going to write you a million dollar check right now. I'm handing it through the screen. What are you going to do with that million dollars? But you can't, this is the, the catch. You can't invest in one of your own funds or pack horse or Emmy. Would you donate it to charity? Would you pay off debt? What would you do with that million dollars? Yeah, I, I have to say, if you gave me a million dollars, I'd just give it to charity. I, I could think of some wonderful youth education opportunities, especially in music. My wife's a professional musician. Wow. Um, she came the whole way up through the Sydney Youth Orchestra. What's her instrument of choice? 
violin, violin. She was the concert master of the oh, Australian beautiful. Youth Orchestra many years ago. Um, You've done well then. And, and <laughs> she serenaded you with her violin. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, no, I have done well. Um, but we won't talk about that. Uh, yeah. um, and we've, you know, that's been something that we've been very interested in. And, and just youth artistic development, whether it's the Australian Theatre for Young People or, you know, there's a whole bunch of those that, that live hand-to-mouth so, that, I mean, that's where the money would go. Tough times recently as well with COVID. Oh, struggled. And the, yeah. and the governments around the world have, have have pulled back from funding those grassroots areas and have given the money to the flagship um, organisations to keep them alive because their audiences haven't been there. So very challenging for them. That was a great answer. Now, we've got one last very, very important question that we ask all of our experts, coffee, tea or tequila? Oh, I'm not a tequila fan. Um, Bad experience in the past. I'm afraid it's coffee. (laughs) Coffee it is. is, I'm boring, flat white. Coffee (laughs) while you look over your pastures at the burping cows, eh? That's it. That's (laughs) it. You got it. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for taking the time to speak with us. We've learned a lot. Our listeners would have definitely learned a lot. Um, and where should people go if they want to learn more about Packhorse or the Hyperion funds? Yeah, so there's, I mean, Hyperion actually have a very fulsome um, webpage, hyperion.com.au. Go to Insights and you can actually read profiles on each of the companies we own. I've never seen a manager do it so thoroughly. So, you, uh, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely worth going to the hyperion.com.au insights and looking at each of the funds and the stocks and pack horse for that matter tells a lovely story we've done it with videos and guys on horses and and grass and cattle i i love it i mean it's just it's 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 about the it's about the uh it's about the regeneration but it's also about food security i mean all these extra people that are going to be alive in the next 20 30 years um, are going to need food and um, you know it's going to be the next big challenge of our generation is feeding the world. Food and security. yet you're targeting to pay eight to ten percent. Um, yeah, you know, I was just about to annum. say so that. that's something to be you know look away on. Yeah. That's no, not paying. So total total return. Some of that's in capital appreciation. So gotcha. ag land in Australia has accreted at about six and a half to seven and a half percent per annum over the last twenty years. And in fact, it's been longer than that over any decade period going back. It's it's been that growth dri- driven by the demand for the underlying product, which is food. Um, but the yield is more likely to be three and four. Yeah, yield of three and four, uh, and, and, and then, frank, as you said, the capital on yeah, top. That's that's yeah. really great numbers, though. Compare it to bonds. So you know, it's a real asset. It's a real asset. And what are you going to make out of bonds over the next ten years in a rising interest rate market? Yeah, that's little it. to nothing. Yeah. Hmm. Great insights. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. It's absolute pleasure. I love talking to you. Wow, that was a fantastic conversation with Tim. I personally, like I kept saying, wrote down lots of companies. You know, my notebook is full here with ideas. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shrine Partners, the discussion today is obviously not considered personal advice. As always, you should seek professional financial advice before making your investment decisions. So make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Remember, if you've got any questions or you want to ask us anything at all, please contact us tmtm at equitymates.com. Now, we will be back next week with another interesting conversation where we'll be having one of the best research 
analysts in the Australian mining and mineral sector. So if you're into mining stocks, you don't want to miss this one. That's right. So we're going to actually shake things up here at Talk Money to Me with a lot of interview episodes coming your way, taking insights into some of the industry's biggest names on the horizon. So back to back, really interesting episodes for you. You'll have to just keep listening to hear who we sit down with, guys. That's it. We just couldn't wait. We had to drop them as soon as possible because they're very, very exciting. Until next time. See you then. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the EquityMates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, EquityMates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.